So we are in the middle of a mini-series on hospitality, and um, we talked about this some at the camp out last weekend, um, and hospitality in the original language, uh, the word quite literally means lover of stranger, lover of stranger, stranger. Um, and last week at the church camp, we spent some time in Ephesians 2 giving sort of a theological groundwork for hospitality. And we particularly looked at the fact that the greatest act of hospitality in the history of the universe is Jesus Christ himself, breaking through the veil of this broken world to take on our skin, to live among us, to obey God perfectly, to love his neighbor perfectly, to suffer, bleed, and die, to assuage the wrath of God so that we might be welcomed back into the life of the triune God. And that is the greatest act of hospitality. But today I want to talk more broadly about um, hospitality, but specifically in the context of evangelism. And what I want to do this morning is lay before us a vision of what uh, evangelism looked like in the early church through the book of Acts, and then give us some principles and some vision for what evangelism could look like for us as a church today. So we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 16, and in Acts chapter 16, you get three different snapshots of three different conversions. There's, the, um, there's Lydia, there's the slave girl, and then there's the Philippian jailer, and they're all happening um, in this kind of sequential order. And we're going to look at those, and we're going to draw out some principles. And today is somewhat more of a topical sermon than we're used to. Um, drawing out specific principles and a vision for evangelism. And, and really the first point um, is going to be somewhat more of a, of a teaching on mission. So stick with me. And then the second point, I'll more explicitly exegete the text. So let me read to us from Acts chapter 16. I'm going to read uh, verses 13 to about 34. And on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who'd come together. One of them who heard us was named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, and they dragged him into the marketplace before the rulers. And then when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments of, of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. 
About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors opened, and everybody's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he took out his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced, along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. This is God's word for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful that you've given us your word. We're grateful that we see the Acts of the Apostles in the formation of the church. And Father, we pray that you would give us vision this morning. We pray that you would lead us to have a vision to reach out to the world around us. We pray that you would give us boldness to speak the words of the gospel. And Father, we pray ultimately, though, that the Holy Spirit would make the words of our Lord Jesus true and real to our hearts, and that we would trust him and treasure him above all else. We ask all these things which we could never, ever do apart from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So three points. Point one, the oikos. Okay. Point two, the converts. And point three, some practical application. So point one, the oikos. I'll explain what that means, probably. Uh, first, what do we mean when we say um, evangelism? What do we mean by that word? Um, the, the Greek word, euangelizo, uh, means to gospelize. It means quite literally to gospelize. And, and it means to tell people the good news about what Jesus has done for us. Um, but there str- has been a strong tendency, as John Stott notes, for Christians to withdraw into a kind of closed evangelical monastic community. But this is not, of course, how things were in the early church. In the early church, this work of gospelizing, this work of getting the good news of Jesus out was, was done by everyone. It wasn't something that was just done by the apostles, but it's very clear through the book of Acts that it was done by every single Christian, this work of evangelism, and it's, and it's done so endlessly. And the other thing that we can note and see from the book of Acts is that it's oftentimes happening in a very relational sort of way. That the gospel is being communicated from person to person within the context of a relationship. That's the hospitality part that we've been talking about. That hospitality and evangelism are part and parcel of each other. Of being welcoming to those that are in our lives. But what's crucial for us as a local church to see is that the work of evangelism is the work for the entire church. One of my favorite verses of all time is 2 Corinthians 5. 20, that we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, that we're ambassadors for Jesus Christ. And Paul isn't writing this letter to a seminary class of aspiring pastors before graduation. 
He's writing this letter to be directed to all Christians, no matter what their occupation is. Pastors, school teachers, personal trainers, stockbrokers, moms, police officers, everyone, everywhere for all time. Are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And the job of an ambassador, the role of an ambassador, is to represent someone or something. Everything he or she does and says must intentionally represent a leader who isn't physically present. An ambassador isn't limited by a 40-hour week job or something like that. An ambassador is always on call, always representing the king. In Tim Keller's book called Center Church, he says, he says this. He says, under Christendom, people simply came to the church to receive the ministry from professional clergy. He says, but we can no longer assume that people will come. This is not to be taken to mean that the ordained ministry is obsolete by no means. He goes on, it is the responsibility of the ordained leadership of the church to build up the church and its members through the ministry of the word and sacraments. However, one critical focus of that ministry must now be the discipling of the laity for the ministry in the world. He goes on, it's a long quote. In answering, asking two professors at Fuller Seminary, he said, what are the marks of a church that live missionally? And this is what they said. They said, they no longer see the church as the primary connecting point with those outside the community. The connecting with those outside happens within the culture, by insiders to that culture who express the gospel through how they live. Okay? So a church that lives on mission, a church that is a missional church, is a church that doesn't see that the Sunday morning gathering is going to be the primary connecting point where the lost are going to hear the gospel. But they see that their lives and the different networks that they have and their neighbors and their coworkers and their friends and so on, those are going to be the primary ways that the gospel is going to get out. And that's exactly the way that it was in the early church. Um, One early church historian named Rodney Stark wrote a fascinating book uh, called The Rise of Christianity. And he makes the staggering point. He asks this question. He says, how did a tiny, obscure messianic movement from the edge of the Roman Empire, dislodge classical paganism and become the dominant faith of Western civilization. He goes on to say that in AD 40, there were about a thousand people who would call themselves Christians. But makes the point that by the fourth century, there were as many as 25, even 35 million Christians in the world. That Christianity grew by 40% a decade for almost 300 years. That's staggering. And he asks the question, and he spends the book Rise of Christianity answering the question. And this is what essentially he says. He says that, that the reason for this wasn't because of a few dynamic leaders. But he says the reason was because every Christian was gripped by the love of Jesus and they went into a broken and hurting world as ambassadors for the one who had saved them. That's how the church grew. The church grew as unique as it wasn't built just around one or two or a few central leaders. The church was a ministry and Christianity was a religion that was for the people. And everybody understood that their job was to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ because they'd been saved and they were gripped by the love of God through Christ. And that's some of what I want to press into more this morning as we look at the case study of these three conversions in a second here in Acts. 
But in two of these case studies that we're going to look at this morning, there's a word that's used to describe their influence. There's a word that's used to describe the influence that Lydia and the jailer have. And the word is oikos. And it's the word that's translated in your Bibles as household. So their, their, their influence was their oikos. Their influence was their household. It says of Lydia in verse 15, and after she was baptized, and her oikos as well. It says of the Philippian jailer in verses 31 and 34, it says, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he believed in God. The most important way that Christianity has spread, it was through this extended relationships through the household. Evangelism being done informally by Christians. And to kind of give context for what I mean by oikos, what I mean by household, what the Bible means here, is that a person's strongest relationships were within their household. Their blood relatives... Their servants, their clients, their friends, and so on. And so, and so when Lydia or the jailer becomes a Christian, it was the household that would get the most serious hearing. If the, if, if the head of the household became a believer, then the entire home became kind of this ministry center of sorts in which the gospel was taught to all the household members and neighbors. It happens in Acts 16 for Lydia and the Philippian jailer. It happens in Acts 17 in Jason's home in Thessalonica. It happens in Acts 18 in Titus Justice's home in Corinth. It happens in Acts 21 at Philip's home in Caesarea, and so on and so on. And this home, this, this, this oikos, this, this, this influence was used in a variety of ways to get the gospel out. In Acts 5, it's systematic teaching and instruction. In Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius, it's a, it's a planned presentation of the gospel, inviting people to come and hear. In Acts 12, it's a prayer meeting. In Acts 16, it's an impromptu evangelistic gathering. In Acts 20, it's evenings devoted to instruction and prayer and fellowship. And so an oikos, an oikos is your sphere of influence. Those that are connected to you, and every single one of us that's sitting in this room has an oikos. You have a sphere of influence. So let's just think about this very practically, okay? We've said this before, but here's, I think, how you could summarize your sphere. These are people that are in your lives that don't know Jesus, okay? You've got family members that don't know Jesus. You've got neighbors that don't know Jesus. You've got coworkers that don't know Jesus, And you've got affinity groups that don't know Jesus. And the goal is that from each of those four groups, you would ultimately build friendships with them. And you would strengthen that sort of influence in their lives. That's your oikos. That's your household. Every single one of us has these kinds of networks. We have family members that don't know Jesus. We've got coworkers. We've got neighbors. We have affinity groups. And the goal is that we would make friends with these people and have the opportunity to speak the gospel to them. So, here's, here's your homework assignment for the week, okay? I don't usually do this, I realize that. Here's your homework assignment for the week. This is what I want you to do. You write down the names of people in each of those four categories. Your family, your neighbors, your coworkers, and your affinity groups. And number two, Just start praying for them. 
Maybe you're already doing that. Just start praying specifically that God would use you to save them. That you would have an opportunity to speak the words of the gospel to them. And third, just be honest about how important Jesus Christ really is to you. That's the kind of influence that we have in these relationships. Sometimes we feel like evangelism is something that we have to force into every conversation. But if we have the mindset that we're just going to be honest about how important Jesus Christ really is to us, then it'll be much more natural to discuss it, much more natural to bring it up. Because if he really has saved you, then that's the most important thing about you. The most important thing about you is that you're a child of the king. You're redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You have a seat at the table All you have to look forward to is glory and hope and peace and life everlasting. It's the most important thing about you. We learn to be honest about that with those four groups. We pray that God will begin to use our influence to be strategic about our oikoses, our oikoses, or our cosimos. So that's point one. Everyone has an oikos, everyone has an influence, and that's how the early church grew. The early church grew because those networks, those relationships were leveraged, were used by God to influence people. It wasn't just a few dynamic leaders. It was the entire church being sent out on mission and and, and being honest about how important Jesus Christ really is to those relationships. Point two, the converts. Um, There's three different people here that we have the conversion story of. And they are three very different people. They're three very different people. And, you know, you should realize that, that I'm sure there was, a, there was a ton of conversion stories from Philippi. And so we have to know that Luke is being specific here. Luke is the writer of, of, of the Acts of the Apostles. He's being intentional here about showing us these Three specific conversion stories. Because these are three very different people. You could almost describe them as as the religious, the oppressed, and the secular. The religious, the oppressed, and the secular. And we'll look at all three in brief here in a moment. But it's almost it's 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 the rich, it's it's the it's the destitutely poor, and it's the blue-collar worker. And all three are represented here in this text. So let's look at the first. Lydia. So let's describe who Lydia is. Well, it says here in the text, in verse 14, that she's a seller of, of purple goods. Um, that's a way of saying that she's, she's a wealthy trader. She's a wealthy trader in, in garments and, and, and so on. She, she, um, she, she clearly had her own home and, and, and she, she, was, she was well-to-do financially. It, almost, it also tells us that she was a, a very religious and moral person. It says in the text that she was a worshiper of God in verse 14. Now that's, that's a technical term almost. It's a description of a Gentile who has been converted to Judaism. It's a, she's, a, she's what's known as a God-fearer. She's a worshiper of God. She was a Gentile that's been converted to, to, to be a Jew. She's a Gentile convert to to the Hebrew Scriptures. And she's at a prayer meeting. Verse 13, they're down at this place of prayer. So she's this religious person who's, who's seeking to, to, to follow uh, the, the, the God as revealed in the Old Testament and so on. She, she's influential. 
you know, she has a household, she has people that she's, that she's there praying with, she's wealthy, and so on. So how was she converted? How was she converted? Verse 14 says that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. Her eyes were opened through a conversation with Paul. Here's Paul. He's having this conversation with this religious and pious person. He tells her about Jesus Christ, and the Lord opens her heart to pay attention. Who opens her heart? Paul? No, Jesus opens her heart. The Lord is Jesus. He's the one who opens her heart. And then it says that she paid attention. And that's, in my opinion, not a great translation of that phrase. I think a better translation would be desire. Would be desire. Her heart was opened and had affections, and her heart was stirred towards what Paul was saying. She was gripped by the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. Her heart was opened and she began to desire this Jesus, to desire what Paul was saying, to have affections for this Jesus. Jesus became precious to her. I mean, imagine for a moment how that that might have happened, right? So we know she's a Jewish convert. She's probably uh, very familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures. Imagine the conversation that maybe she was having with Paul. She's having this kind of intellectual, theological discussion with Paul. And she, 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 of course, knows of the promise that was given to Abraham. That through one of Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And she probably knew of, of, of the law that was given, um, it was given to Moses on Sinai. And how it showed God's standards and God's, and God's holiness and revealed his character. And she probably knew of the sacrificial system as well, knowing that the, that the law, law on, on one hand is, is beautiful and glorious, and at the other hand, it's, it's no man can stand under it. And so that God had made a way to atone for not living up to the law. And I can imagine this conversation, and then all of a sudden, Paul saying that the key to all those things you've talked about is this God-man, Jesus Christ. He's the one through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He is the true seed of Abraham. He's the one who reveals the character and nature of God like the law. And he's the one who actually fulfills it. And then he is the the, the Lamb of God who truly takes away the sin of the world. He's the one that ultimately provides atonement for sin. And you can see this religious woman... And her eyes are opened when she hears this message of Jesus. And her heart is stirred to have great affections for him when she sees that the whole scriptures hold together. The whole point was to point towards Jesus Christ. And she gets gets saved. She gets saved through a theological, intellectual conversation. And there's a point here to be made there's a point here to be made about, about why um, new converts are oftentimes the most effective evangelists. New converts are, are oftentimes the most effective evangelists because they're in relationships that you and I don't have. You and I have relationships, for, better, for, for right or wrong, that are, that are very religious in nature. We have a lot of friends who are Christians, right? 
And oftentimes new converts don't have very many friends that are Christians. They have a lot of friends that aren't Christians. And so here's this opportunity to, for this woman to, to begin to, sh- to spread her influence and, and share of this beauty and this glory that she's seen. I mean, one of the, one of the things I, that, about, about me and my wife is that I don't really like to... I, don't, I, don't think it's just, I think it's just a personality thing. I'm not saying this is right or wrong. I don't really like to enjoy things without her. I'm not the kind to like watch a movie or, or, or read something. In fact, when I read at home, it's sometimes very distracting because I walk upstairs and say, listen to what I just read, and I'll read it back to her. And she'll be like, that's great. I need to go back and do you know, what I was doing. Or I'll listen to something and I'll like pause it and go upstairs and, and gather all the children. I'll disrupt the homeschooling. Be like, you guys got to listen to this. And they'll listen to it. And Vanessa has very gently told me, dear, can you not do that anymore while we're homeschooling? <laughs> but that, that thing inside of me that wants that is that desire to be standing shoulder to shoulder with something and gazing on something that's beautiful. It's like it, 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 it heightens um, the, the joy of the thing when you have a fellow companion to travel with. And that's what's happening here with Lydia. Her heart is stirred and she sees the beauty of Jesus is and she just longs and desires to stand shoulder to shoulder with others and and gaze on him as well. So that's Lydia. Second, the slave girl, the oppressed now, if we were to describe her, we would probably say that she is almost just the opposite of Lydia. Okay, she's, she's, not only is she financially destitute, she's enslaved. She doesn't have anything. She's, she's completely powerless over her life. She's powerless over the decisions that are being made. She, she does not have a household like Lydia does. She does not, she's not a, a you know well-versed in, in, in the trade world and financially savvy and so on. She's a, she's a powerless, oppressed slave girl. The text gives us no indication that she's somehow you know, moral or a God-fear. In fact, she's the opposite. She's possessed by a demon. She's possessed by a demon. And she, of all three in the story, all three of the conversions, may have actually known the most about Jesus. But she is filled with just spiritual turmoil. This woman is far from Jesus, but she knows about him. So how is she reached? Lydia's sort of reached through this theological discourse and so on. But this slave girl is saved by a dynamic power encounter with God. She, in fact, is saved through an exorcism. As hard as that is for us to maybe get our minds around. She's saved by a dynamic power coming upon her and saving her. Exercising a demon from her, casting it out from her. And you see here that this slave girl was both a victim of social and spiritual oppression. She's a victim of spiritual oppression because we've already touched on this somewhat. She's possessed by a demon, but she's a, she's a victim of social oppression too. She's enslaved. And she makes, you know, she makes this kind of money for her masters. And, and, when, and when she no longer has this, this evil spirit that's kind of inside her, she becomes worthless to her masters. Verse 19 says that when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, um, they seized Paul and Silas and took him 
into the marketplace before the rulers. This girl just had a utilitarian aim for these, for these people. And that's why Paul and Silas are dragged and they're, they're beaten. Because they upset the black market, as it were. They upset this kind of perverted, dark world. And in fact, it sounds a lot like the city that we live in. Where there's drug abuse and oppression and prostitution and rampant homelessness. In fact, it sounds a lot like the neighborhood that this church is in right now. And you understand this kind of social kind of oppression that this girl is experiencing. I mean, have you ever had this experience where you've, I've had this experience where you're having a, maybe a conversation with a, with a homeless woman about Jesus or a woman that just seems very, just very, very troubled and struggling and you, and you notice out of the corner of your eye that, that her, her pimp's down the street kind of staring at you and, and not wanting you to upset things? This person who oftentimes knows about who Jesus is, oftentimes knows the message of the gospel you know, better than better than most. But I think the point here for us to see is that this girl's liberation is a, is, 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 is a liberation that's on the inside and it's on the outside. That there was the necessity for social action to be involved. There was the necessity for social action to be involved. The structures that bound her were both spiritual and social. And they were both broken down. Um, So when the cross, when the, when the gospel, when the cross comes into um, the center of our lives and we see that Jesus Christ himself was, was the true rich man, he's the son of the king, and for our sake he became poor, that he was born in the most humble of conditions, he was raised by poor parents at his, um, when they went to the temple they, they, they brought the, 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 the most inexpensive sacrifice that they could, they could afford. And he did that for our sake. And he did that so that we, through him, might become rich. And when we see that, when we see that, the gospel changes us so that we can never look at the poor the same way again. It means that ministry, to that, that there's a, there's a class of ministry that requires both spiritual and social action. So that's the slave girl. The jailer. The jailer. He's a... This is the blue-collar guy. Okay? This is the secular guy. This is a... You know, he's a... He's a cop. He's a, he's a former um, Roman soldier, likely. We know that because we know that, um, that these kind of civil jobs, like being a jailer, were oftentimes given to sort of retired soldiers and, and so on. In terms of his... Um, financial security, he's, he's probably somewhere between Lydia and the slave girl. Um, and he's, he's probably a secular guy. You know, of, of, of the three, he's, he, there's no indication in the text that he's, he's searching. He's not really a seeker. Um, he's not like Lydia, who is a God-fearer and is, is trying to find her way to God. And he's not like uh, the slave girl who's just wrapped up in spiritual things, both demonic and now good. He's just, he's just doing his job. 
He's just kind of a, 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 a regular kind of guy. And, it, you know, what matters to him most is, you know, honor, duty, country. Because, you know, when the, when the, when the, when the, when the doors to the jail are opened, first thing he does is he pulls out his sword. You know, he's, he's probably going to be executed anyway. And he says, I'm going to die the honorable death and I'm going to follow my sword here. You know, that's the kind of guy he is. If, if, if Lydia lives in the southwest hills and the slave girl lives under the Burnside Bridge, then the jailer lives in Clackamas. You know, that's just, that's just the kind of guy he is. How, he lives behind Mall 205, okay? That's, that's where I live, okay? So I'm not, no dig on Clackamas, all right? So how does he get converted? How does he get converted? Lydia gets converted by having a theological, intellectual discussion with Paul. The slave girl gets converted by having this, you know, this power from outside, this kind of in-your-face exorcism. The demon is cast from her. How does this guy get converted? He gets converted because he sees two things. The text tells us that Paul and Silas had been severely beaten, right? They were flogged. They were beaten with rods. And that, that the jailers ordered to take them to the jail, and, and he takes them, and he, and he binds them in the stocks. Now, they likely had, well, we know that they had wounds, because later in verse 33, it says that he took them to his house and cleaned their wounds. So he had initially just taken these two guys who'd been beaten, who still have bloody wounds that haven't been treated or anything. He puts them in the stocks. And what does he see? Verse 25. At about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So here they are. They're in this horrendous circumstance. They've been jailed. They have open wounds even, and they're praising God. These guys have everything taken from them, and yet they still have a deep and profound joy. They have a deep peace in the midst of horrible circumstances. The second thing he sees, verse 26 to 28, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw the prisoner's doors were open, he drew his sword about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. That's amazing. The doors are opened. Paul and Silas were, were already falsely imprisoned. Well, they were, they were, they were imprisoned under, under uh, the grounds that they, they liberated a slave. Okay, They could have just walked out the door and left. But they knew something. They knew that their escape would have been his sure death. Their escape would have been his sure death. That's just what happened. If you were the prison guard and all the prisoners escaped and were released, then it was, it was a high crime. It was execution. And he knew it. And that's why he pulled out his sword and he was ready to lay on it. And Paul and Silas knew it. 
that if they left, it was his sure demise. Because they know, and they did not repay evil with evil, but they repaid evil with good. They knew on an ultimate level that their escape from sin and death and the wrath of God was only because of the sure death of Jesus Christ in their place and on their behalf. And so this jailer sees these men who have a profound joy in the midst of trying and difficult circumstances. And they have, they, he sees these two men who actually aren't graspers on their own lives, but they're givers. And they, in fact, save this jailer's very life simply by staying. And it has a profound effect on him. He wasn't seeking God. He wasn't looking for God. He wasn't asking questions. They weren't even necessarily, you know, evangelizing him. They just were being honest about how important Jesus Christ really was to them. And he's so moved, he's so cut to the heart by it, that he says, what must I do to be saved? Their testimony of, 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 their, of their love, of their joy, and who Jesus Christ was, stirred this man and prompted him to ask the question. Because these two men were like no other men that this, that this Roman soldier had ever seen before in his life. This man who probably lived a very brutal life, being a soldier and so on. He encounters these two men who've been touched and seized by the love of God. They've been changed from the inside out. So what does this mean? Point three. What does this mean for us? It means, as we've said before, I think as Chris has coined the phrase that we should live with the blinds open. To live with the blinds open. To let others see into our lives. To see that the joy that we actually have in the Holy Spirit to see that the joy that we have because we have been saved by God, we have been saved by grace. We were released from the prison of the wrath of God because Jesus Christ died in our place and on our behalf. And that touches us with a profound joy and we should welcome others into it, to, to, to live, as we say, with the blinds open, to let people see that we really have been gripped by the love of God through Jesus. Second, it means that we ought pray. That there is a very spiritual element to evangelism and gospelizing. Because remember why they're here. Do you remember why they're here? Because verses 9 and 10 tell you why they're there. It says, In a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia. Concluding that God has called us to preach the gospel to them. That God spoke in some, a supernatural way to Paul and said, go this way, do it that way. And this is the testimony of the scriptures. That's the way that Jesus lived. Remember when Jesus reached out to Nathaniel, he had a, a, there, was a, there was a prophecy in the form of a picture. Or John chapter 4, the woman at the well, there's a, there's a prophecy in the form of a word of knowledge. Or, or John 9, when Jesus heals the blind man and he believes on Jesus. So it's attended to by these, very, by these acts of the Spirit 
Or in Luke 10, when Jesus sends out the 72 and tells them to heal diseases and proclaim the, the kingdom of God is here, he tells them to heal. Acts 6 tells us that Stephen did wonders. Acts 8 says that Philip proclaimed Christ and did signs in Samaria. And so on. And so on. Um, one of the things that, I've, uh, that I, I do sometimes on the, is I actually I take an Uber to church on Sunday mornings. And I do that so that there's not two cars here and I can ride home with my wife and all that. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what I do. Um, so this morning, I'm in, I get in this car. This guy named Harold is there. And I know that I'm going to preach this message. and I'm going to make this application point about, you know, pray. Pray for words of knowledge. Pray for God to make inroads and open doors. And so I start praying that, right? And I'm praying that this morning as I'm driving with, with this guy. And... I just, the Lord's prompting me to say something, right? And I just, I don't know. I'm afraid. I don't want to. And I don't. And so we're getting off the freeway at Foster, and we haven't said one word to each other except good morning, good morning, good morning. And he just says, are you a pastor? (laughs) And I said, yes, I am. And I said, how did you know that? He said, because we're going to the gathering church at 7 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. And I said, oh, yeah, okay. And he says, yeah, I'm a Christian, and I think it's really cool. I just dropped off somebody over in Gresham was, who was doing music ministry over there. And he's like, can I just, just, can I just pray for you and just encourage you as you minister the word to them? <laughs> I was just like, man, that's just like the Lord, right? It's just like, I'm just, I'm just, and I'm like, yeah, that'd be great. And I get out of the car, and he's like, God bless you, brother. And I'm like, you too. <laughs> The point being is that as we take these steps of faith, as we ask God to, to, to give us promptings and encouragements that we're going to make mistakes, we're going to fail, we're going to wuss out, but God used that this morning in my life to encourage me that he, he was speaking to me. He was telling me to say something to this man, and, and in a very clever sort of way, I was, I was actually encouraged. Um, so we up pray, and we up pray as we're, as, we're, as we're walking through this neighborhood. You know, there's a, there's a farmer's market that's just here till in, in, Len, in, the, in, the, in the Lens Farmer's Market till 2 o'clock. You know, if you have nothing going on this afternoon, why don't you just, just take a walk and pray? Pray that God would reveal something to you. Pray that God would bring someone in your path. Start praying for your, your, you know, your spheres of influence as, as you're walking. And just the final application that I want to make for you this morning is... Um, is that Jesus will not be contained. Jesus will not be contained. You know, Jesus meets Lydia where she's at, this, this woman who's this God-fearer and is, and is trying to feel her way and find her way to God. And Jesus reaches this slave girl who's oppressed, and Jesus reaches this average Joe kind of guy who wasn't looking for him, wasn't even necessarily interested in him. But that should be profoundly encouraging to us this morning because he, reads, he meets these radically different people and he meets them exactly how they need it when they need it. And the same is true for you this morning. We have people here that are rejoicing. We have people here that are getting ready to get married next week. That are, yeah. And they're, 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 there's... I'm sure there's nervous, but there's joy and excitement in what's happening. And there's people here that are, that, are, that are concerned about the future. 
There's people here that have children with, with health issues and are, are nervous and are just, are just crying out to God to, you know, to heal their children. There's people here who have children that are you know, not walking with the Lord right now and they're just asking for God to do something. And the message of this text, the overarching message of this text, is that God meets his people where they're at. And his grace is sufficient for you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful. We're grateful for the finished work of Jesus Christ in our place and on our behalf. God, we pray that we would rest in the finished work of, of Jesus and that our lives would be a testimony to your grace, that it would truly grip us and it would just be a natural overflow of the joy that we have found, the love that we have found, the fount that is ours without cost or price to us, but of infinite cost to yourself. So we thank you for it, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to transition now to the Lord's Supper, where um, we celebrate what God has done for us in Christ. Uh, The table is open uh, if you're a Christian, and uh, by that we mean you've, you've, you've made a public declaration of your faith and you've made that faith public through the waters of baptism. And if that describes you and you're joining us from another church, you're welcome to partake. We're going to come up row by row. Um, but I wanna, I'm going to do something real fast, though. Do you want to share something? Andrew shared with me before the sermon that he, he thinks he may have a word for someone here. Yes, um, some people here are feeling really discouraged and um, weary and even to the point of despair, feeling like throwing in the towel altogether perhaps. And uh, to you, the Holy Spirit is saying this, we are confident of better things concerning you Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. So we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises.